0: This is case 29 from the Denko Roku, Bodhidharma, the case. The Buddhist master, Prajnatara, asked Bodhidharma, what among all things is formless? Bodhidharma said, non-origination is formless. Prajnatara asked, what among all things is greatest? Bodhidharma said, the nature of reality is greatest. Kazan's verse. There is no more location, no bounds, no outside. Is there anything at all, even in the slightest? So it was quite a dramatic way to open, dramatic way to commemorate our founder, the founder of the Zen tradition. What does it mean? What do we do with it? How do we understand our practice? How do we understand what it is that we realize? And how do we understand how to actualize it? How do we mobilize it? Zen, Zen practice is often interpreted as too rigid, too structured, limiting. And sushin can definitely seem that way since he's asking us to follow a tight schedule, long hours of stillness and silence. And it demands that we keep up with many rules, very specific kind of rules. So it may seem as if it is rigid, but the reality of it is quite opposite. The rigidity is actually in us. The rigidity is in the way we meet the practice, not in the practice itself. The rigidity is in, our, in the common way we think, in black and white, and the way we tend to cling to our opinions treat them as absolutes. And the structure, what we may feel is limiting in practice, the structure is just upaya. It's just a skillful way to help us see our own uptightness, our own unwillingness to change our own unwillingness to accept things as they are and change is things as they are we took a walk today outside around the lake that's the best teaching isn't it, you look around What do we see? Change. What do we see? Non-resistance. What do we see? Full acceptance. Alignment. Everything is ready and willing to change as needed. Except for us. And the practice is meant to open up things, meant to bring flow to our frozen hearts and frozen minds. Of course, we react to it. It'll be odd if we wouldn't react to it, right? Of course, we have strong opinions and resistance. to the practice as I mentioned many times before what matters most is the way we use the practice what do we do with it rather than hold on to an opinion about it we should ask how do I use it how is a lot more important then forming an opinion, holding on to it. Am I using it correctly? Am I seeing it correctly? Because if we don't do that, it's very easy. We would very quickly create something out of practice, become uptight about it, self-righteous about it, and then create another trap or cage to crawl into. And the Buddha warned his disciples from the beginning about that. He said, watch out. Watch out to not become self-righteous about these teachings. To not fault others for not following it. To not think that because you're practicing, you are somehow better. Special. And the commitment is essential, right? So to commit, regardless of how we feel about it. Because if we judge by our feelings, we wouldn't do anything. But we'll do things for a very short period of time. And then we don't feel like doing it, we drop it. Pick up something else, try this for a while, drop that. It's not entertaining me or... It was interesting, but now it's no longer interesting. Oh, I came across something I don't like. One of my Aikido teachers, a Japanese who passed away some years ago, used to say, in regards to Aikido, no commitment, no harmony. And Aikido is about creating harmony. It's about creating unity. It's about merging, following. It's about the willingness to change. No commitment, no harmony. No commitment, no realization either. No commitment, no alignment. The practice itself allows everything, as I mentioned yesterday, to come up to the surface. And by doing so, it gives us the opportunity to bear witness to everything. Just to bear witness. And bearing witness means just that. Being present. Holding the space to what arises. Not following any of it. Not judging. Not creating further internal dialogues from the ongoing internal dialogues. And then learning to be comfortable with not knowing what will arise next. Or learning to be comfortable with change. Learning to recognize that change is not an enemy. It's not something that is there to defeat us. And what we need to do, what we think we need to do, is find ways to either delay the effects of change, deny it. So we have to learn to be comfortable with or within discomfort. And we we call this process a movement from a contracted and limited state of being to an expansive and liberated, all-inclusive state of being. Nothing remains outside of that. It takes care of the outside because it includes it, because it blurs the line between the inside and the outside. And when Sashin begins, it's, it's common to experience a discrepancy between the outer silence of this place of being here and the inner loudness of our minds. But as the hours go by and we sit and we sit and we embrace the silence or the silence embraces us, the mind gradually gets quiet and the gap between the inner and outer begins to shrink. And as it happens, we begin to realize an immense power, unlimited potential that lies in just being, in bearing witness, in not following, in staying exactly where we are, fully where we are. Conventionally, we are led to believe that power is gained by and sustained by following our thoughts and emotions, by making sure the world is well aware of who we are, of what we think, of what we like, what we don't like. But then when we come here, we have an opportunity to put it all aside for a little while, and take time to silently observe. When we do that, a completely new vista opens up, and in that process we get intimately acquainted with an indescribable and all-encompassing presence which is beyond anything we can quantify, count think of, imagine So when you bear witness for a while which I assume is what you've been doing You bear witness and inner turmoil subsides. Can you identify that which is bearing witness? That's the next step. That's refinement and further refinement. Who is bearing witness? I can see what I'm bearing witness to. Or what it is bearing witness to. But who is that? Do we know who has the capacity to watch the turmoil without getting entangled in it? Or in other words, can the one who is bearing witness bear witness to itself? In this case, Kazan's verse says. There is no more location, no bounds, no outside. Is there anything at all, even in the slightest? And these two lines, these simple lines, are both terrifying and deeply reassuring. They are terrifying and deeply reassuring. And when you sit for a long while and you bear witness, you actually begin to see the gradual disintegration of your conceptual boundaries. And then you may experience that the outline of your existence, of what you call you, begins to blur we begin to experience permeation in both directions. You permeate your surroundings. Your surroundings permeate you. And that is terrifying. Because there is a sense of losing something. So at such a moment we can either try to look for security in grasping or for some familiar thought or memory or sensation or drift further and further and further away with that. Expand further and further. Into the process of Losing it all. Someone said in Dokkasan that I experienced this and said, the pain that I had was gone. But then I wanted to go back to the pain because the pain was something familiar, something tangible, something to hold on to, something to recognize by myself by. It's amazingly healing. Yet, we can't find ourselves there. We want to go back to the pain, to the internal turmoil, arguments, complaining, and all the things we do to sustain an illusion. So of course, you know we come into a place like this, there is a very structured practice. It's a threat. Well, we don't say it this way, because we may complain about specific things, too much something. But we have to look further. We have to look deeper. Is that really what's going on? Or is it just unwillingness to recognize change? Unwillingness to embrace change? So just at that point, when we begin to lose the boundaries, the outline of you just there, Kazan is asking us, "Is there anything at all, even in the slightest?" In a way, this is a fork on the road for our practice. One side of that, right? One, yeah, one side will take us back to what we know. The other side is blank. We know nothing about it. And practice says, go there. Don't go back to what you know. Go towards what you don't know. Sit with that. Essentially, nothing is lost. We say to lose it all, but essentially, nothing is lost. But there's no way around going through the process of feeling as if we are losing everything. There's no bypassing, there's no shortcut. And it means there's no way around feeling as if we are losing ourselves or losing something very precious with all the sadness and mourning that comes with it. There is, in a way, a sense of saying goodbye. Forever. But we have to lose it all before we can recognize that nothing can be lost. We can't just read about it in a book or hear it in a teisho. That doesn't amount to much. It's often referred to as the spiritual trauma of awakening. This is what the Buddha realized 2,500 years ago. And then a thousand years later, Bodhidharma distilled this realization to what he called special transmission outside words and scriptures, directly pointing to one's own mind. And this is what, we chant the lineage, this is what runs through the lineage, that realization. That there's nothing there. No inside, no outside. Bodhidharma's original name was Bodhitara. And he was the third son of a king of Koshi in southern India. His father, the king, was a devout Buddhist practitioner. And as a gesture for his devotion, he once made an offering of a precious jewel to the Buddhist master Prajnatara. We just chanted that today, right? Prajnatara, and then after that, Bodhidharma. And not that long ago, scholars came up to the, came up to the conclusion, with the conclusion that Prajnatara was actually a female. I was very happy to hear that. Maybe some people were not too happy, particularly men. But it it changes something, you know, to know that the teacher of Bodhidharma was a female. It opens it up even further. No boundaries. So Parajnatala wanted to discern the understanding of the three sons of the king. So she called them. And while holding up these precious jewels she received from their father, she asked, Is there anything which can compare to this jewel? The first two sons pretty much echoed each other and said, this jewel is the finest of all precious gems and nothing can surpass it. Only one of your spiritual greatness should be, would be worthy to receive it. And the third prince, Bodhitala, said, This is just a mundane gem and cannot be counted within the highest rank because the highest rank of all jewels is the jewel of reality. That was way before he, was, he became ordained or a teacher. This has only a mundane glittering and cannot be considered to be the highest because the luster of wisdom is supreme. This has a mundane clarity and cannot be considered to be the finest because the clarity of awareness is supreme. This jewel cannot even sparkle as it does without the luminosity that knows it's gleaming. It cannot sparkle without the luminosity that knows it's gleaming. If you know, you know that this is a jewel, and knowing it is a jewel, you know that it is precious. If you know it, if you know that it is precious, then you should know that its value is not true value itself. If you know that this is a jewel, you should also know that the jewel is not a jewel itself. This jewel is not a jewel because it is only the jewel of knowing that can discern it as even a mundane jewel. Its value is not true value itself because it is only the jewel of knowing that has true value. He's talking about the ability to discern and not what it is that we discern. The way that you teach is a treasury of knowing, and thus you have been offered this mundane treasure. Just as this treasure has appeared due to your wisdom, so may the treasure of awareness appear in those who awaken to it. That's your cue to move This this stunning expression (coughs) is taking the attention from what the eye sees to that by which the eye can see. And that changes everything. Yeah, we assign provisional value and meaning to what we encounter. But as he said, the ability to discern is far greater than what it is that we discern. Since the ability to discern is wide, unlimited, and is not trapped by what is being discerned. And without that, nothing can be discerned. Nothing can be done, nothing can be seen. What we see, hear, and touch is only made possible by a raw potential that is never hindered or stained by what we see, hear, and touch. In the same way that when you flash light on something, what you see is not stained. The light is not stained by what you see. So what you see does not have the power to stain the illumination or make the illumination greater. So if you shine on something that stinks, illumination does not stink. If you shine on gold, illumination does not become golden. It remains an open, empty potential. It's a brilliant way to describe it, the way he answered. He said, the jewel cannot even sparkle as it does without the luminosity that knows it's gleaming. You can't bear Bearing witness is not possible without having the capacity to bear witness. And this is where we look, that's what we need to practice. Rather than get caught up in what we see, we have to look at what is it that sees. Our tradition is also known as silent illumination. It's very fitting to being at Sashin, silent illumination. Because when thoughts subside, the thinking process subside, and we are left with silence, what do we see? Maybe nothing. Silent illumination is essentially shifting the attention to that which has the potential to bear witness. And it has the potential to illuminate what the naked eye cannot see. It has the potential to say what the mouth cannot say. What the ear cannot hear. When Prajnatala heard this eloquent expression, she realized that this prince has great is a great Dharma vessel. But she also knew that the moment was not yet ripe. So she kept silent and left. And this was the first encounter between Prajnatala and later on Bodhidharma who later became her successor. And in this exchange, the first two sons looked at the jewel and, and the teacher from a perspective of differentiating consciousness and expressed their understanding based on what they saw. Was that wrong? Was that not genuine expression? Or was it less genuine than Bodhidharma? Seeing through the differentiating consciousness is an essential aspect for survival as species. So of course there's no need to reject or deny our capacity to discern or what we discern. Provisionally or conventionally, there's nothing wrong with that. But the issues arise when the provisional and ephemeral is perceived to be fixed and unchanging. When we think that what we see remains the same. When we think that our thoughts substantiate something. That's when we begin to create issues. is what happens when our attention gets caught up in the foreground without having some sense of the background. Without the background there is no foreground. Without what we cannot see what we can see is not made possible. Or without the air that's coming out my mouth The words will not be heard. We hear the words, but we don't see their air. We don't see what makes it possible. And because we don't see it, we think it's not there. For we're not in touch with it. So we are fooled by what we see, what we hear, what we touch, And we need to go deeper. Examine, inquire. Have the courage to inquire. And I said to many of you that I'm I'm encouraged by your courage, by the fact that you're here, that you're willing to put it all on the line. You're willing to work with the challenges, the difficulties. Now, there are many Zen practitioners out there. It's not exactly hip, is it? And we can understand why. So, you can say that you can hear me because of what I am not saying, not because of what I am saying. Because it is not, it is. Because you are not you, you are able to be you. Or because I am not here, I am here. And it is not play on words. It's real. So looking at the jewel Prajnatala was holding, Bodhidharma said, its value is not true value itself because it is only the jewel of knowing that has true value. What is not seen through the differentiating eye is the ground of what is seen and therefore has unsurpassable value. What we see has limited value. The potential is unlimited. In trust in mind, Sengtsan Saint says. The subject disappears with its object. The object vanishes without its subject. Objects and subjects, sorry, objects are objects because of subjects. Subjects are subjects because of objects. Know that these two are essentially of one emptiness. The one emptiness unites opposites, equally pervading all phenomena not differentiating what is fine or coarse. How can there be any preferences? The great way is all-embracing, neither easy nor difficult. The narrow-minded doubt is, in haste, they fall behind. And this is referring to the all-embracing vastness, Without the background, there is no foreground. Emptiness is none other than form. Form is none other than emptiness. It's redundant. To say it is redundant. So, later on, after this meeting, Plajnatara came back to visit and asked Bodhitara. She skipped the two other brothers, she went directly to Bodhitala. What among all things is formless? Bodhitara said, non-origination is formless. Prajnatala asked, what among all things is greatest? Bodhitara said, the nature of reality is greatest. And those are the two lines brought up in this case. Non-origination is formless and the nature of reality is greatest. What is there before thoughts arise? Before connotations are formed? Prior to the birth of this organism we call me. Does the foreground covers, cover the background? Are we a hindrance to that potential that make us possible? The narrow-minded doubt this. Right? The narrow-minded have narrow view or rely only on what is seen and cannot get in touch with this. Hence, expansion, and expansion, and expansion. These are the questions we have to deal with if we want to penetrate the true meaning of Bodhidharma's teaching. So putting these two statements together we might say that the nature of reality is non-origination and therefore unsurpassable. The nature of all things is non-origination. Kizan Zhenchi commented on this saying, you can understand this realm as inaccessible, like ten thousand fathom precipice or as brightly illuminating all distinctions. You can think of all things as being nothing other than that, and that they they remain just as they are, changeless along with oneself. But these are not at all non-arising or non-origination. Therefore, they are not formless. Prior to the separation of heaven and earth, how can you distinguish holy and ordinary? So when we take the backward step as as Dogen says what do we see? What is there? What is your original face? So prior to the separation of heaven and earth and he's referring to a state of mind of being before the mind moves. Before discriminating consciousness grabs you, or before you're lost going along following an opinion or an idea or a sensation, just there, just before, is there anything there? It says, therefore, the greatest of the great. He says. And, that's, and that the great is called inconceivable. It is also said that inconceivable is called dharma nature. The nature of reality, as he says. And when we chant, now nah, I return to oneness. We are raising the intention to return to the inconceivable. But if it's inconceivable how do we do that? How do we travel from what is to what is not? What Kezan says is before the thought of is and is not arises in the mind before the appearance of duality comes up It shapes your view of self and other. There is unity. There all is one. There you do not exist. When we try to, to make sense of it and explain it with words, we get stuck. Or we lose it. We lose touch with. And all we can express is just a limited aspect of reality. You know, challenges are everyday challenges. Don't have to be so heavy, complicated, source of suffering they only become this way when we fail to realize or recognize that what appears as separated is essentially always within unity what we want to reject actually what we want to reject is what we're looking for but not in that way obviously what we run away from and what we run towards are essentially not two. So to return to oneness simply means to not create conceptual gap. Mainly between you and yourself. So the two lines brought up in this Khan only a part of a longer dialogue that they had. Prajnatara then proceeded to ask Bodhithara, what is it that all things are hung on? In other words, what is the source of everything we experience in our everyday life? Bodhitala said, all things are hung on the sense of self and other." All things are hung on the sense of self and other. It's quite deep. This is something to sit with for a while. Finally, Tala asked, "What is the highest among all things?" And Bodhidharma said, the, "The actual nature is the highest." And it's a bold statement. He's saying that essentially, we are unhindered, and nothing can be substantiated. But our sense of being held back arises out of sense of fixed sense of self, or fixed self. And from that, there is, of course, a creation of a fixed other. And the creation of a gap. And the question is are we, willing, are we ready to give up on this gap? Seng San said in the same poem Seize all speech and thought, then everywhere you are with the way. To attain the principle, return to the source. Pursuing reflections, the essence is lost. Inner illumination in a moment surpasses idle emptiness. So after that, Rajnatara then still waited for a while for the right moment, or for the moment to be ripe. And sometime after that, the king died. While everyone was mourning, Bodhitara sat before the coffin in Samadhi for seven days. He then went to Prajnatala and requested ordination as a monk. Seeing that the moment has arrived, Prajnatala agreed to ordain him. And following this, Bodhitara sat and practiced for seven days before the presence of Prajnatala and received complete instructions from the Saladis of practice. On hearing these teachings, Bodhidharma realized supreme insight. And Padajantara said to him, You have complete wisdom into all principles of the Dharma. Dharma means complete knowing. Thus I shall name you Bodhidharma. So having received the transmission, Alma knelt and asked, I have realized the Dharma. Now where shall I go to do the work of the Buddhas? That's our question. Where do we do the work? Where is the Buddha field? Taj Natala said, You have realized the Dharma. Stay here in southern India for some time. 67 years following my death you should travel to China and establish there strong medicine to teach those excellent those of excellent potential. And Bodhidharma asked will I be able to find those who can become vessels for these teachings? Will there be trouble over there over the next thousand years? Prajantala answered there will be numberless people who will Wake up in that land where you shall teach. There will also be some trouble, so you should lay low. That was the premonition that led him to China. Having thus received the transmission instructions, Bodhidharma attended Prajnatara for 40 years, and following her death, Bodhidharma began to teach and became well-known throughout India. After 60 years, Bodhidharma knew that the time has come and he journeyed to China. He got on the boat, traveled for three years before arriving in southern China the year of 527. And when he arrived, the famous meeting with Emperor Wu took place in the Liang Dynasty. When he met Emperor Wu, Emperor Wu asked, What is the highest meaning of the Holy Truth? Bodhidharma said, Empty without holiness. Emperor said, who is facing me? And what did I I don't know. And it says that the emperor did not understand. And from there he traveled to northern kingdom of Wei and settled in Shaolin Monastery. He sat there facing a wall for nine years the famous wall-gazing of Bodhidharma. And he did so without giving any verbal teaching. And eventually he started to teach and he passed on his skin, flesh, bones and marrow to his four disciples, Daufu, Dayu, Kongji and Huike. And he saw that their potential was right. And of these four successors, Huike was the one who received the Robin ball. So that's a summary of Bodhidharma's life. There's a lot more to that. there are different opinions scholarly opinions about the existence of Bodhidharma some say there was such a person some say that this person or those stories are a compilation of five different people but it really doesn't matter whether something existed or did not exist or someone existed what matters is how do we understand the teachings if we think the teachings or the teachings are about a person then we're not looking at what the teachings are pointing at we're looking at the pointer so whether or not some of those stories are real, some of them are not real, most of them not real. It's really irrelevant. All that matters is how do we practice it, how do we actualize it? Does it encourage us to go deeper? You know, at the core of Bodhidharma's teachings, all of it is summed up to four lines. special transmission outside scriptures not founded upon words and letters by pointing directly to one's mind it lets one see into one's own true nature and thus to attain Buddhahood and this simple statement is, is probably the most important contribution to the living Zen tradition. It cannot be attained, it cannot be accumulated, and it cannot be given from another. And it does not rely on verbal explanations or sutras or commentaries or books. Huineng was illiterate, deeply realized, the sixth patriarch. Simple, peasant. It doesn't rely on anything because it's about nothing. Anything that relies on anything is already something. Bodhidharma said to find a Buddha you have to see your nature whoever sees his nature is a Buddha if you do not see your nature invoking Buddhas reciting sutras making offerings and keeping precepts are all useless which is really asking us how are we doing all this you know we went through chanting and offering and bowing and it's all great But how do we understand that? Do we go through the motions or do we actually realize that it's us doing it today, here? And if we realize it, that Bodhidharma is alive because the teachings are alive, because we are a continuation, or we have to be a continuation of these teachings. Otherwise, it becomes rigid and dogmatic and hindering Bodhidharma said about practicing the Dharma. He said, the Dharma is the truth that all natures are pure. By this truth, all appearances are empty. Defilement and attachments, subjects and objects don't exist. The sutras say, the the Dharma includes no being because it's free from the impurity of being. And the Dharma includes no self because it is free from the impurity of self. Those wise enough to trust and understand this truth are bound to practice according to the Dharma. And since that which is real includes nothing worth begrudging, they give their body, life, and property in charity without regret, without the vanity of giver, gift, or recipient, that's the triple emptiness, and without bias or attachment. And to eliminate impurity, they teach others, but without becoming attached to form. Thus, through their own practice, they are able to help others and glorify the way of enlightenment. And as with charity, they also practice the other virtues. But while practicing the six virtues to eliminate delusion, they practice nothing at all. That is what is meant by practicing the Dharma. As for the revolving wheel of the Dharma, no thought is wasted over it. No ounce of energy should be wasted over it. That's what that means. We chant a lot of amazing stuff. But is it alive? Is the question. I'm going to end with two short stories that I think go go to the heart of it. First one is from actually connected to yesterday's Taisho, show. Jingyang and his, his teacher Daiyang. When Jingyang was chief gardener, he was tending to the melons. Daiyang asked him, "When will the sweet melons be ripe?" Jingyang said, "Now they're already very ripe." Daiyang said pick the sweet melons and take them away. And Yang said, to whom shall I give it? Shall I give them? Dayang said, give them to someone who has not been in the garden. And Yang said, do you think that people who have not been in the garden will eat them? And Dayang said, do you know these people or not? Yang said, although I don't know them, I can't help but provide for them. Although I don't know them, I can't help but provide for them. That's actualizing emptiness. They may throw my gifts away, and it's not going to change anything. They may spit on it, and it's not going to change anything. another story about Rumi <clears throat> and the seeker, which portrays this very well. Once upon a time, a young man decided to leave his homeland and go to learn from the great teacher Rumi in Konya. After weeks of travel, he finally reached the outskirts of Konya and saw a gracious presence walking towards him. The young man knew in his heart that this was Rumi. So he dropped to his knees in prostration before this great teacher, of course the guy who has been seeking. But as he got up, he saw that Rumi was prostrated in the dirt towards him. Amazed and embarrassed, the young man again prostrated himself and again found Rumi prostrated towards him. This happens over and over again until the young man finally said, Why are you, my teacher, prostrating yourself in the dust before me? A mere seeker. And Rumi simply replied, If I did not show you my nothingness, what would I be useful for? If I did not show you my nothingness, what am I good for? And this is what we need to embody. Embody nothing That would be a great celebration of Bodhidharma's life.